So allow me to just kind of get our bearings again. We talked about we have three eternal families. Well, we're hoping to have three eternal families. We have a family in heaven. So, so family number one is I am a child of heavenly parents. Then I come to earth and I form family number two, family three. I know there's multiple here, but bear with me. This is ether, eternal or earthly family. If I make covenants, I can become part of family three, and that is the family of the covenant, the family of Christ, where he becomes a parent. Now, we have been, I, I think the structure of this is beautiful, and I love the structure of, if you look at the structure of the, oh, I was just there. If you look at the structure of the proclamation, notice it does the same thing. Here's husband and wife. There's that earthly family, family number two, and what comes before that husband and wife family? Eternal parents. What comes after? The third family, you see the structure of the proclamation kind of matches the progression of our family. So I would suggest to you that one of the best ways to make this an eternal family is to be an active participant in that eternal family. You will be a better father and a better mother, a better husband and a better wife if you are a better child of heavenly parents. The more you actively participate in that family and invite a relationship with Heavenly Father into your life, it will help this family. Now, before we go on, we will not do so. I wanted to focus last week on that one word, that family is central. But we will not spend a whole lot of time. I would just submit this paragraph is gold for understanding how eternal parents parent. The more you pattern your parenting after eternal parents, the more you will have an eternal family. So I love this. This is how Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother raise us. In the premortal realm, spirit sons and daughters knew and worshiped God as their father and accepted his plan by which his children could obtain a physical body and gain earthly experiences to progress towards perfection. That's a, that's a, a hundred thousand hours of study in one sentence. That heavenly father and heavenly mother are actively involved in helping us progress towards perfection, which would suggest they don't expect perfection now. They actively are pushing, helping us progress towards perfection to ultimately realize their divine, our divine destiny of heirs of eternal life. There is nothing heavenly parents have that they are not willing to give us. Their whole goal is to give us all that they possess as soon as we're ready for it. That's great parenting. The divine plan of happiness enables. That's a fantastic verb. Heavenly parents enable. They enable family relationships to be perpetuated beyond the grave. Sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples make it possible. We'll come back to that. But I would just suggest that watching heavenly parents, if you pause and you ask yourself, how does heavenly father parent me? And am I parenting in that same pattern? Am I doing with my children what he is allowing me to do as his child?
That's a fantastic study that will improve your parenting. But we don't have, we, we got to move on. We've got a lot of things to cover in this class. So now we're now going to turn to, we're going to end here, but we're now going to turn to the third family. The very best way to make family two eternal is to fully participate in family three. And so we're going to focus here. Happiness in family life is most likely achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you participate in the covenant family, the more you actively participate in family three, the more likely family two becomes a model of an eternal family. We can fix what's broken in family two by more fully participating in family three. Then the list. And someday I'd love to ask the 15 people who put this document together how they came up with these nine. I would imagine it was quite a discussion. But prophets, seers, and revelators declared successful marriages and families are established and maintained on, and then nine principles. I can name some significant principles of the gospel that are not among the nine. So why they focused on these nine is a fascinating thought. These nine principles, and I would suggest that we could spend the whole rest of the class just studying these nine principles. Now, I love the nine, and I would suggest that we could put them in groups. If you look at the nine, let me suggest that the first two go together. I think we could focus, let me just pair these up, faith and prayer are a pair. Families are better off when they include faith and prayer. Faith is an essential ingredient to eternal families. The very fact that you have enough faith to try a family, to hope for a family, to live for a family, having faith in your children, having faith in your spouse, having faith for example, to have a child. Faith is essential. Prayer is essential. Those two go together. Then notice the next two. I think the next two could be a pair. Notice that family doesn't work without repentance and forgiveness. Family doesn't work without a whole lot of I'm sorry's and a whole lot of I forgive you's. It fascinates me that those two come next after faith and prayer. It's repentance and forgiveness. If you think you're going to marry a perfect person, then you're a hypocrite because the person who marries you isn't going to. And that's not fair. It's not fair to expect your spouse to be okay with imperfection and not be okay with imperfection. You are going to marry a sinner and a pretty big one at that. And so will they. And there's things that they've struggled with and there's things that you've struggled with. And the way it works is you both have faith, 
pray, repent, and seek forgiveness. Families don't work without repentance and forgiveness. We'll, we'll do that next. Then I would suggest there's a threesome. There's three that come together. And we will focus a great deal of time here. Respect, love, and compassion. Family only works if there's respect and love and compassion. Unfortunately, I've seen the absence are one or two of those. I've seen love without respect. And I don't know that I would really call it love, but I could make a case for love without respect. I've seen a lot of you, I've seen a lot of your colleagues marry someone out of love, but there is a lack of respect in the relationship. I've seen love and respect without compassion. I've seen respect and compassion without love. Those three go together. In my personal opinion, I think those three form a triangle that is charity. Charity, I would suggest to you, is, the perfect, is a combination of love and respect and compassion. And then the last one's fascinating. Family only works if we balance work and play. Work and fun. And sometimes we're out of balance on the work side. Sometimes we're out of balance on the fun side. Sometimes a marriage is out of balance on the work side. And sometimes it's out of balance on the play side. It doesn't work if one wants to play all the time and one wants to work all the time. There is, has to be a balance. Now, I just love those nine that we are going to have a better chance at an eternal family if we let the gospel teach us principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and play. So today, let's jump into the first one. I know this is the eternal family, but right there in the proclamation, it starts off with the only way family works is if we have faith. And the only way you're going to make a marriage work is if you have faith and marry someone who has faith. And so what is faith? Faith is one of those gospel principles that is nearly impossible to define. Every time I've asked for a definition, what's your definition of faith? and they say a definition, I can turn it so that it's not always a definition of faith. For example, people say, well, faith is works. Faith is action. Faith is doing. Well, is all doing faith? Okay, so it's more than that. Well, faith is believing in what's not seen. Okay, but can I believe in something that's not seen and not have faith? So what's faith? I have spent my whole life asking that simple question, what is faith? What I want to do today is simply share my journey to understand what faith is. I recognize that some of you will have a different journey and you will come to find faith in another way. But let me share with you, I want you to walk out that door with a very concrete, oh, I know what faith is and I know when I'm having it and I know when I'm not. 
I wanted to have something I could put my hands on and say, okay, that's faith. So may I, may I break faith into two pieces? Allow me to just present two ideas that have helped me understand what faith is. So let me present them separately. And I'm going to use a graphic today. I served my mission in Mexico. And so this is an appropriate, this is significant to me. But here is my picture for today. This is faith. Now, this is Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Beautiful pyramid. So let me just point out, what is the temple here? Is the whole thing the temple? Is this, do you walk up those stairs and then climb down into the temple and there's one room and there's another room? Is this base open and the temple is all of this? And the answer is no. What's the temple? Just this. That's the temple. May I suggest that that is like faith. This is faith. But faith stands on a foundation. And I love this imagery because it looks like it's layer after layer after layer. Faith rises or falls on whether or not it has a foundation. If your faith lacks a foundation, it's going to fall. And look at this building. That building's not going to go anywhere. And that's what faith needs to be. So let me ask the first question. Where do you get the very first layer of faith? And it's not where I expected to find it. Faith isn't some leap that I make. The very first layer of faith, let me share with you, when the church was in Kirtland, Joseph organized all the leading leaders of the church into a school of the prophets. And he produced a curriculum, and the curriculum was called Lectures on Faith. In one of those lectures, Lectures 2, we asked the question, Where does faith come from? How is faith born? That's what I love about lecture two. Faith, where does it come from? What is the birth of faith? And here's the conclusion. This is what Joseph Smith taught in the School of the Prophets is the very, very first layer of faith. And it's not something I do. I think that's significant. Faith is born when he does something and you notice it. Joseph Smith taught, the object of the foregoing quotation is to show to this class the way by which mankind were first made acquainted with the existence of God. How does faith begin? And then he answers the question. It was a manifestation of God to man. Now, those of you served a mission, what was the moment when in a convert's life, faith was born? It's when he reached out and touched them. The very first layer of faith is born when God manifests himself to you. Can you think of moments like that in your life? I'll tell you mine. 
I'll give you my very first layer of faith. I was seven years old. I, vi- I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in second grade. My mom had gone to California and bought, you know what moms do when they go on a trip, they bring gifts for their kids. And my mom brought me the coolest gift ever. It was a Super Bowl. The thing was like picked up momentum as it bounced. It was the bounciest ball I still, to my li- in my life, I've ever owned. It like picked up momentum as you bounced it. And no one had one because it was from California. It was a new idea, new toy. And my mom brought me home one. Well, I was going to South Jordan Elementary School, not the one that exists today, that was torn down. The South Jordan Elementary School I went to had a side entrance that was kind of an an alcove. So there was cement, solid brick walls, a pretty solid ceiling, and metal doors. Five solid surfaces. And I got the bounciest ball that I've ever owned. We invented the greatest game known to mankind, and we called it suicide. It was the best game ever. There was a little line in the middle of the alcove, and that's where the pitcher pitched. We all just kind of spread out, and you had to hit a wall first. That was the rule. But after the ball hit the wall, any person that it hit was out. So I would try and throw it so it hit as many people as possible. And as soon as the ball came to a rest, the first person to grab it was the next pitcher. Greatest game ever. (laughs) But the best part about the game is they couldn't play it without me. I had never been the popular kid. I was always the really, really tall, really thin kid. I weighed in my freshman basketball tryouts, ninth grade. I was six foot two and weighed 122 pounds. The coach made me step off the scale and get back on to make sure the scale wasn't broken. Yes, I weigh 122 pounds. That's who I was my whole life. But for the first time ever, I was the kid everyone was going to play with at recess because I had the ball. Well, one day, Someone threw the ball and it went out into the field. Now, this was rural South Jordan with fields everywhere, and it went out into the field. And 35 little second graders go running out to find the ball. Now, they don't care as much as I do, and after a while, they just start leaving and find something else to do. But can you sense the devastation in my heart if I lose that ball? And I knew that if the bell rang and the fourth graders came out, I'd never see it again. And so I said a prayer, a seven-year-old's prayer. Heavenly Father, help me find my Super Bowl. Looking back as an adult, I kind of smile and think, you know, somewhere life was on the the balance and, and I'm praying to find my Super Bowl. And it was a really simple prayer. Name of Jesus Christ, amen. And I promise you on my life that when I said amen, I was standing above a weed and I pushed it aside and in a hole underneath the weed was my Super Bowl. When I said amen, it was standing at my feet. And I picked it up and I said, oh, thank you, Heavenly Father. And I heard a voice or felt a voice, I don't know. 
I remember it vividly. He simply said, you're welcome. And I knew he lived. I knew he was real. And my very first layer of faith was laid down underneath that temple. Not because I did something, but he did something. He reached out to me. Now, here's the thing. With one layer of faith, how am I going to pray next time? With one layer of faith, I pray with more earnestness next time, which is going to cause what? More manifestations. And now with more faith, I pray with greater confidence. And do you see how this is just kind of cyclical? And that's how faith is born. So I would suggest step number one is, are you putting yourself in a position so that he can manifest himself to you? Faith is born when he manifests himself. Are you inviting that? Are you reaching out to him? Would he have manifested himself that day to me if I hadn't prayed for my Super Bowl? Probably not. And so faith, step number one is, are you putting yourself in a position so that he can manifest himself to you? And after 54 years, if I have layers and layers and layers, it's because he keeps manifesting himself to me. Last night, my wife had a huge layer of faith. She's really struggling with right, with right now with some medical challenges, and she was really, really down last night. I teach at night. I'm not there. She was really, really struggling. She laid down on the bed just really kind of in a sad state. And our son is coming home this weekend, um, and she just thought, I can't wait to see him. Oh, do I need a hug from him? And the phone rings. And it's him. And he says, Mom, what's wrong? I just felt like I needed to call you. What's wrong? Are you okay? And she just wept. How did he know in that moment that she needed him? And she knew who was behind the phone call. And one more layer was laid out on my wife's temple of faith. Do you see where it comes from? Faith comes from God manifesting himself to us. And the more I put myself in a position so that he can manifest himself to me, the greater my layers of faith. Now, there's number one. Are you building a temple of faith by putting yourself in a position so God can manifest himself to you? Do you seek him? Do you yearn for him? All right, number two. Why in the Yucatan Peninsula would they build a temple like that? What do you know about the Yucatan Peninsula? What's east? What's west? 
what's north, what's south. Why in the world would they build a temple like that? Because it will require uh, effort from someone to get up to, to the top of the temple. Okay, so there's a, need to, there's a need to climb it. I get that. But why build that temple in that place? What's going to happen in the Yucatan Peninsula that would require that level of a base on it? I get that the structure of the temple requires effort. But what's going to happen in the Yucatan Peninsula? Flooding. Flooding. What's coming in from the east every single year? Hurricanes. And what is all the way around the Pacific Ocean? We call it the ring of fire. They're going to deal with volcanoes, earthquakes, flooding, and hurricanes. Why in the world would you build a temple that looks like that? Because it is going to get beaten up. Now, may I suggest your faith is going to be beaten up. Now, step number two is what do you do when the hurricane comes, when the fires come, when the floods come? Your faith is going to be beaten up. And what you do next is de going to determine if you hold on or not. Now, let me turn to C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis, and his definition of faith is one of my absolute favorites. C.S. Lewis said the following. Oops. I used to assume that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason. That is not so. For example, now C.S. Lewis died in 63, so date him. My reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on the table and they clasp their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke and I'm afraid they'll start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. Now notice, it's not reason that is taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based in, on reason. It's my imagination and my emotions, and I'm going to use the word fear. It's my fears. So C.S. Lewis says the battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination and fear on the other side. It's not between faith and reason. The test here is between faith-reason and fear. That's the test. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I am not asking anyone to accept Christianity if the best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence is against him. Don't join Christianity if it doesn't make sense to you. That is not the point at which faith comes in. I love that because God doesn't ask you to believe something that doesn't make sense to you. That is not the leap of faith he's asking for. 
It doesn't make sense. Well, believe it anyway. That's not the moment. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for it. That's number one. I've made a leap. I believe that God lives. I have evidence that he does. I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment where there is some bad news or he is in trouble or he's living among a lot of people who do not believe it. And all at once, his emotions will rise up and carry out a blitz on his belief. Those of you who taught a family, they were so with you, they felt the spirit, they knew it was true, and then you left and they talked to their family and they came back and said, no more. There's the blitz on their beliefs. It was fear. Or else there will come a moment where he wants a woman or he wants to tell a lie or he feels very pleased with himself or he sees a chance of making a little money in a way that's not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and his desires will carry out a blitz. Now this profound statement. Faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your, I'm going to change it to fears. I think that's one of the greatest definitions. Faith is the art of holding on to what you know is true in spite of your fears. Now, I guarantee that if you listen, he will speak. There will be a moment where he manifests himself to you and you will know that there is a divine being out there. He will manifest himself to you. Now, watch what happens next. There's going to come a moment where your fear rises up. And that's the moment. You either hold on to what you know is true in spite of your fears, or you let go because of your fears. Now, do you see how family comes into play there? You either hold on to what you know. I can do this. We can make a family work. In spite of your fears, or you let go. That's number two. Number one is allowing God to manifest Himself to me, and then number two is you will hold on through the fear. You hold on through the darkness when your fear suggests that it's not true. Do you see it? No one doubts whether or not there's a companion out there when they're 16. No one doubts whether or not there's a companion for them. Everyone trusts that when they're 16 that I have an eternal companion out there. And then you turn 22 and 23 and 24 and 25. 
and the people you date you would never marry and you get into a relationship and it ends badly and pretty soon all your fear suggests what there's no one out there for me now do you hold on to what you know is true in spite of your fears and you keep going and you keep trusting or do you give in to that fear and sink? You're married. Your finances are <laughs> thin. Baby comes and they're even thinner. You pay your tithing. Do you know how much, do you know how hard it is to pay your tithing when you can't even afford to buy formula? Now, my baby can't drink my tithing. My baby can drink formula. And now all of a sudden, now I know the promise, I know the promise, and I know, I know the promise. And then here comes the fear. I got to feed this child. And I don't know if I can give 10% of the money that I have to the church and not have formula. Do you see the fear? Faith is the art of holding on to what you know is true. What he has confirmed to you is true. In spite of those moments where the waves of fear come bashing against you. That's faith. And when it comes to family, there's a whole lot of fear. Fear that you'll find someone Fear in the timing of when do you have a child? There's a whole lot of moments where you are combated by fear. Now, do you hold on through the darkness? Let me give you an example. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Let's watch this in action. Matthew chapter 14. Now, this is, the, this is Jesus walking on the water. Peter's been in a boat. He's been rowing for nine hours. He's exhausted. He's tired. He sees Jesus coming. Jesus comes and says, It is I. Be not afraid. So Peter says, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee in the water. And I think all of us would say that same thing. I'm tired, Lord. If that's really you, can I come to you? If it be thou, Bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, what does Jesus say to any invitation to come unto him? What does Jesus say? Come out of the boat. Come out here, Peter. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean go out there? Yes, come out here, Peter. Now, how much confidence does Peter have in Jesus? How many layers of watching him do miracle after miracle. How much confidence does Peter have in this moment? Enough to do what? To jump out. Does he reach over and test the water? If he tests the water, is it solid? How did Peter get out of the boat? You and I know. With full confidence in Jesus, he jumped out of the boat and landed on a solid surface. And then the storm, there it is. 
There is the symbol of exactly what's going to happen. Your manifest, Christ is going to manifest to you your confidences. That's part one. Peter had enough experience with Jesus to trust him and jump out of that boat. And then the waves, the storm, the doubts, the fears. I can't do this. I can't be someone's eternal companion. I can't find an eternal companion. We can't have a child now. I can't send him on a mission. And the waves of fear come. Now, notice the verbs here. Peter saw, and as soon as you focus on the storm, he feared and he sank. So, do you see the storm and yet hold on? He invited me to come. He tr I trust him. This storm is not going to pull me down. Or do you see, fear, and sink? Now the Lord, luckily, what does Peter say as he's sinking? Lord, save me. And he rushes and he pulls him out. And what's his rebuke? Tell me what the Savior's rebuke was. Why did you let fear? Why did you give in to the fear? There is an eternal companion. I... I once, I teach a science of dating class. And in my science of dating class, I use a two-piece puzzle set. And the idea is, you know, you're looking for your matching piece, right? My granddaughter, whenever she would come to see me, would want to play the two-piece puzzle set. And I watched her play the, I watched her play with the two-piece puzzles. Now, a two-year-old little girl picks up a puzzle piece, picks up another piece, and they're not a match. Now tell me what a two-year-old girl does. She puts it down and tries another piece. Because tell me what her two-year-old brain says. Tell me what she's thinking. My grandpa would not give me a puzzle set that doesn't have a match in it. I know there's a match there. And so she confidently puts it down and tries to find, oh, that's not, that's not it. Now, tell me what we do. We pick up a piece and that's not a match. That's not a match. Some of us try to force it. Yes, it is. It is a match. And we come to the conclusion, no, it's not. And then we whine and we complain and we let our fears suggest what? There is no match. I'm not worthy of a match. Now, do you believe in a heavenly father that would have sent you to earth at this time and not have included lots of possible matches? Grandpas don't give their two-year-old granddaughters puzzle pieces that don't have matches. But do you let your fear 
Have you stopped trying because of fear? Have you stopped hoping because of the waves that cause you to sink? Do you see why faith and family are so essential? Now, pretty soon you're going to be junior year of college and your wife's going to say, I'm ready for a baby. Now, what do you know in your head? Tell me what you know in your head. This is what we're supposed, this is good. The Heavenly Father will help us. But what does every fear rising up try and suggest to you? We can't have a baby. We are babies. <laughs> now, do you hold on? Or do you see the storm, fear, and sink? Faith and family are an essential combination. With all my soul, I testify that everything you righteously desire can be yours. Now, faith in God means faith in His timing. And holding on to what you know is true in spite of your fears. But way too many sink and stop trying because they've let go of what they know is true. That's faith. So I would encourage you to put yourself in a position constantly to hear him, to know that he lives, to constantly acknowledge that he is manifesting himself to you, to be sensitive enough to know that when your son calls in that particular moment, you know why. And you understand that that was a manifestation. I would encourage you to keep journals and, and write down every time God manifests himself to you. Those are the layers of your faith. And the more layers you have, look what your temple can become. Now, once you begin to add layers, I promise the waves are going to hit and it is going to be scary. Now, do you hold on to what you know in spite of the fear? That's faith. May you build a foundation of faith. May you know that he lives because he has manifested to you in ways that you know he's real. And then when the fear comes, may you hold on to that tightly and trust. That's what makes family work. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.